You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, good morning, everyone. Once again, welcome to Redemption Hill Church and our Sunday celebration. It's always so wonderful to uh, worship with you all. And uh, before we get into the message, just a reminder that kids, we have the uh, kids' sermon notes for you. If you fill that out, then after the service, you bring it up to me. Got a goodie for you. Also in the hallway are the kids' totes. So if that serves you as well, uh, you can grab that just right in the hallway. Um, sermon on the Mount, man. Sermon on the Mount really does get to the heart, doesn't it? I think if you just kind of read it on your own, hopefully you're doing that, you notice just what it's doing, right? What Jesus is doing. He's going right after the heart in order to get after your life. And it's caused me just to really reflect and slow down about what Jesus really is saying. You know, don't want to cruise by the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we're dedicating so much time um, to go through this wonderful sermon. You know, three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And yet, you know, 30 sermons-ish, uh, we'll see where it ultimately lands, but it's kind of what I've mapped out. And so it's good to slow down. And uh, we're in the first beatitude today, which we'll get to in a moment. But as I was kind of just reflecting on, you know, this first beatitude and really the subsequent beatitudes, I was reminding myself of something um, a friend told me um, many years ago. Uh, I was new to pastoral ministry. And um, I, I, I took it upon myself to learn from older men who've walked the walk in life, been through the ups and downs, and ask them questions, learn from them. And I remember one time I was um, with, with an elder who was on staff, and um, he'd been through it. He'd seen the ups and downs of pastoral ministry. And I don't, know, don't remember how I phrased the question, but it was probably something like this, like, do you have any advice you'd give to a younger man? I asked that question a lot just to older men who've been in ministry. And I'll never forget his response. He said, Sean, you need to learn to hold the things of this world loosely. I mean, talk about something that instantly shaped my heart. What he said was, was monumental. And that's, an, that's excellent advice that he gave. And it's shaped my heart to this day. But as I was thinking about that this week, it kind of begs the question, how does a person hold the things of this world loosely, right? It's one thing for me to say to you, hold things loosely. Okay, great. Great advice. How do you even do that? What does that even mean, right? Over the next eight weeks, I want to encourage you to test your heart against each beatitude. Uh, we're going to ask a lot of why questions, but we're also going to get into the how. And the Beatitudes are going to lead us into seeing our heart shaped for Christ. Like le- even leading up to this Sunday, right? Leading up to this particular Sunday sermon. And I've been preparing for this sermon. As I've been doing that, I have been asking myself this particular question, right? Which is the question to ask when we see this first Beatitude. It is this, Sean Powers, are you poor in spirit. Are you? Like I'm asking myself this question. I must admit that sometimes I can be like, yeah, yeah, poor in spirit. And then there's other times where it's like, well, my actions certainly don't follow what I'm saying with my mouth, <laughs> right? And, I, and I'm sure some of you might relate. Like you might say, yeah, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. You know, yeah, I, I'm with you, Pastor Sean. And then you realize you did something that was the exact opposite of what Jesus is trying to say here in the Sermon on the Mount in this first beatitude. But here's the good news for all of you who have put your faith in Christ. There is enough grace. There is enough mercy from God for you to stumble your way to heaven. Like just stumbling forward. Because <laughs> sometimes that's how life is, right? I I've been there. You've been there. There's enough grace from God, especially as we kind of look at these beatitudes and be like, how do I, how can I even accomplish what Jesus is asking of me? 
there's enough grace and mercy for God from God for you to stumble your way to heaven. And some of you, you're like at a good jogging pace, right? Things are good. You got a good, good, good jog on. Great. Some of you, you might be sprinting and that's cool too. Praise God. But whatever the pace, may our faith in Christ cause us to be humble, right? And in humility, may we continue to learn and to grow. The Christian journey is not necessarily a sprint. So if you're going to run that marathon in a sprint, you're going to get tired quickly. But you got to go at a pace. Like Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians, like it's a marathon, right? And if you've ever run a marathon, I haven't run a marathon. I've done a couple halves. But if you've ever run a marathon... And this, this, I guess, includes for half marathons as well. You know, everyone's kind of running at their own pace. There's sometimes where I've ran, I'm like, I, got, I need a breather. Got to slow down. And there's other people just running right by me. But here's here's the big deal. Here's one of the points I want to make before we before I pray and we get into the Sermon on the Mount. We're all on the course. We're all actually on the course. And it's interesting. I was thinking about the times I've ran half marathons. There's times where, while running... Uh, I've had other people encourage me to keep going, keep going. You got this. And then after I ran a few, I find my, I found myself telling others, you got this. Keep going. You got this. So allow, as we run the race, allow the Beatitudes to shape your heart. And today, I hope you will see what it means to truly embody uh, what it means to be poor in spirit. So let me pray for God's help, and then we'll get into the first beatitude. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and this morning we come underneath your word, knowing that it's authoritative and instructive for our lives. Uh, Lord, I, I do pray that you give me clarity of thought in preaching your word faithfully and carefully. So by the power of the Spirit, speak to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of heaven, what does it mean for you to exist in the kingdom of heaven? Last week, if you remember, I attempted to show you that Jesus has the authority to speak into your heart and life about existing in the kingdom of heaven. At present, we live in an age where God has ushered in his kingdom through Christ, right? But there is more to come. Right, so we're, we're eagerly waiting for the day when Jesus will return and make all things right. Right, We look for that, forward to that day. But while we wait, right, we're, we're called to live distinctly in this world. I, I began to frame it a little differently in my mind this last week after I preached this um, on some of these themes last week. And it's like, it's, it goes like this. Uh, within the kingdom of the world, this world, right, God has created a, another kingdom through Christ. In a sense, this other kingdom is the resistance. And I, you know, when I wrote that down, I was thinking Star Wars, right? The resistance. There is resistance against the kingdom of the world. Christians are a part of the resistance. It resists the predations of the kingdom of the world by, like, how do you resist the kingdom of the world? You live distinctly before God. And the Bible is full of passages that teach Christians how to live in the world, but not of the world. You know, I could go to a lot of different passages in the Bible that kind of tease out this idea that we're supposed to be living in the world and not of the world. And so we got to live distinctly. But I, I'm just going to go to Romans 12. That kind of came to mind, but we can go anywhere, basically. So let me read Romans 12. And let's hear how Romans 12 tells us how to live distinctly in this world. Here's the Apostle Paul, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You hear that? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that's something very distinct about being a Christian. And then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to the renewal of your mind. That's also something that is distinct, that God is saying, you need to live this way. So Romans 12 tells us a bit about what it means to live for God. So the question then, I keep going back to this question over and over. How? How do you live distinctly for God? Right? What does it look like to be a living sacrifice? Like, what does that even mean? Like, imagine if I came up to you and been like, hey, Johnny, I'm just picking a name. Uh, could you live distinctly? Like, could you use your body 
uh, as a living sacrifice. I think the response from John is going to be like, what does it even mean to be a living sacrifice, right? And so we see that. Then we also see um, what steps you need to take, like to have a renewed mind, right? What does that look like? Well, the Beatitudes lead us down the path of change. The Beatitudes help us to conform our hearts in particular ways so that we are living distinctly before God. You, you might remember this from last week. I, I shared this twice last week. I'm going to share it again because it's going to help us track along to the Beatitudes. And then what we read after the Beatitudes, it's actions follow essence. Actions follow essence. The essence of a Christian is summed up in the Beatitudes. Like, how, what is the shape of your heart? What is the shape of your nature? That's what we have the Beatitudes. I've been thinking about that pithy statement, actions follow essence throughout the week. It's good, and I think it's good and right of Jesus to not only preach about how we live, but speak to our hearts, right? I mean, I just pause for a moment. I'm going to interject. Like, as we've been going through, um, in our community groups, we've been going through these marriage videos, what's a constant theme that we see over and over and over again? We're told that we need to be careful and attentive at looking at our hearts first, right? That's really important. Because if you want to be a living sacrifice or you want a renewed mind, then you need to allow Jesus to speak into that place. Right? That's the one area where like, don't go there. And Jesus is like, nah, I'm going to go there. Parenting um, provides several great analogies for some of the points I'm trying to make from Matthew 5. In particular, these Proverbs, or not Proverbs, of Beatitudes. Um, in particular, the Beatitudes, right? So good parents know that as a child grows up, there are like moments of correction. If I tell one of my children not to cross the road, but then they cross the road, it could be me. It could be my parents telling this to me, right? And then let's say I disobeyed. Guess what? There's consequences for my disobedience. The reason there are consequences like, is to invoke change. Like, don't cross the road. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons why. I don't want you to get hit by a car. Let's start with there, Sean. <laughs> um. And there's consequences to invoke change so that my dad can like make sure I survive and not get hit by a car, right? There's reasons. But here's the deal. Good parents know, they understand that you, if you want to see lasting change, they need to speak to the heart of their children. Correction is never enough. Never enough. Proverbs, uh, the book of Proverbs, that is, gives us some insight into the heart. We read in Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance, right? For from it flows the, what do we say, springs of life, right? So there's something specific about the heart in terms of how that shapes the essence and being of a person along with their actions. So because the heart is critical for change, we should not be shocked that the Sermon on the Mount begins with a string of sayings, this pearl of sayings that are on a string that are meant to shape your heart. So as you, as you hear, here's my encouragement and challenge for you. As you hear each beatitude, do not think immediately about what you need to do, right? Do not think immediately about what you need to do. There will be plenty of time later in this sermon series about what do we do. Now, in these beatitudes, think about who Christ has called you to be, right? The different focus, you know, the big philosophical word that I'm describing um, is ontology, but the brass tacks is that Jesus is talking about your essence or your being. God wants to shape your heart to be like his heart. So in the remainder of my time, I'm going to kind of break everything down into three distinct categories. I'm going to talk a little more about the Beatitudes here. Then we'll get into the Beatitudes and specifically, obviously the first one, but we got to contend with what it means to be blessed in the Beatitudes. You see that, you know, if you look down, look at your Bible, verses 3 to 10, blessed, 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 blessed. So we, what, is, what does Jesus mean when he's saying, blessed are? And so that's the second kind of big heading. And then the last big heading, obviously, is going to be poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what does that even mean to begin with? So uh, more, more about the Beatitudes here, then we'll talk about blessed and then what it means to be poor in spirit. So again, what are the Beatitudes? I've kind of talked about them, but haven't really described them for you. 
there's no reason to overcomplicate this and asking the question, what are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes are declarations made by Christ about what it means for you to be happy or blessed, right? Jesus makes nine declarations between verses 3 to 11. Now, some people say there's only seven Beatitudes. Some people say there's eight. I'm going to go with nine. And when we get to Beatitudes 8 and 9, I'll explain that. But let's just say it's verses 3 to 11. No, so Jesus is making declarations. He's making one declaration after another. And we're familiar, right, with famous declarations. I think these particular declarations should be famous. And uh, I think if you paid attention to the culture, sometimes culture will latch on to things that are memorable. We've seen this. But we've, we've learned famous declarations throughout the years. I remember this one, right? Uh, I learned this in high school. No, no, this would have been in grade school. Uh, it was Abraham Lincoln's speech, the Gettysburg Address, four scores and seven years ago. And like after that, my memory tapers off a little bit. But, you know, some sometimes we don't even know what four score means. I had to look it up again. It means 20 years. Um, but it, I memorized it and I still know it, right? Four scores and seven years ago and Lincoln went on and on and on and on. And who could, who could forget these famous words by Martin Luther King Jr., right? These, this was an amazing speech that he had. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation that will not be judged by what? The, the color of their skin. They're not going to be judged by the color of their skin, but by what? I can see you kind of lipping it out there. You know, by the content of their character. Like, that's a memorable speech. It was a brilliant speech. I mean, the words of King could use a boost in our collective American conscience today, but I digress. The point is some declarations are more memorable than others. And I know depending on how you were educated or your upbringing, there are additional de- declarations that you learned and memorized. Matthew 5.3 is the beginning of a declaration. You could also say that verses 3 to 10 are multiple <laughs> declarations. And so what's the point? Jesus aims to speak to his audience and now you in a manner that is memorable. He wants you to memorize these verses. And when you think about the first century during the time of Christ, he was he was talking to a primarily illiterate uh, people, right? Not, most people didn't know how to read and write. And so it had to be memorable. Now, I'm willing to bet if uh, I took a poll, be like, hey, what verses did you memorize from the book of Esther? You know, what we just got done doing um, our previous sermon series and uh, maybe there's a verse or two in there that you memorized. I mean, there's one from chapter four. I'm like, you know, it's a good verse to memorize. But it's not written in such a way that causes us to memorize it. Yes, we know the plot line. I think we all could probably trace the plot line at this point. Uh, we know the main characters. But it was simply just written differently. Well, Jesus wants you to memorize each beatitude and bury it into your heart. When you memorize and lock into your heart each beatitude, coupled with grasping, like it's not only just like memorizing, but you grasp the depth of what Jesus is saying. I mean, then we're headed toward Christian transformation in the heart. But the beatitudes are are more than just um, several declarations made by Christ. As Christ shapes your ontology or essence or being, like it's just who you are fundamentally down the core. He uh, points to himself as an example. Uh, Blair Smith says this, The Beatitudes present the beautiful structure of the character of Christ. So, the shaping of your heart is being directed toward Christ. So, it seems to me that Jesus Christ is the most worthy example for you and for me to follow. So that was a little bit about the Beatitudes and kind of defining it for ourselves. I'm sure you noticed that each Beatitude, and I already mentioned it, begins with the word blessed. The word blessed helps us to discern uh, the emphasis of the Beatitudes. The the Greek for blessed is this Greek word uh, called makarios, makarios. The popular and probably most, I don't know, most used understanding of makarios is essentially meaning favor from, from God. I think, I think this is an appropriate interpretation of Macarius, but I, I actually believe there's there's more going on. I think Jesus is actually saying more than just you're favored by God. 
uh, just hang with me for a moment because rightly understanding the word bless help us to see the emphasis of the Beatitudes. So I actually think this is a really important point. Uh, look, look at Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. So the book of Psalms. We've got all these awesome Psalms, one after another. The first word in the book of Psalms is blessed. I don't think this was lost on Jesus. He knows his listeners knew the Psalms. And he goes to the Psalms to get his cue. What does it say in Psalm 1, verse 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You even just read this and you get the sense it's got this beatitude vibe, right? It's got a beatitude vibe. But we see in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So it's one of those things like, do you want to be blessed? Don't do this and do this. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words to describe what it means to be happy or blessed. Um, one Hebrew word is literally translated as blessed or, or happy, right? So that's one, one Hebrew word over here. My, you know, say I'm holding up to you in my left hand. The other Hebrew word that has the same connotation means human flourishing. Now, hang with me for a moment because I know that I'm getting into the weeds, but I'm actually trying to lead you somewhere. When a bunch of Jewish uh, scholars got together, they were scribes, they got together about 400 years before Jesus was born. You know, people say 70 of them, um, you know, sometimes... History gets rewritten, but I mean, it was probably 70 scribes and, and they got together in um, Alexandria, Egypt. And one of their jobs was to take their Hebrew Old Testament and translate it into Greek. At that time, uh, people were beginning to speak Greek. And so they wanted basically what we saw in the Reformation, a Bible in the people's native tongue. And so when they when they started translating the Old Testament out of Hebrew and into Greek, we call it now the Septuagint, they had to make a translation decision. Again, I know I'm in the weeds here, but I promise you I'm leading you somewhere. And I'm making a direct connection to Matthew 5, 3, verses, from verse 3 to verse 10 and 11. And, and they had to make a translation decision, right? Were they going to describe someone's relationship with God as happy or as human flourishing, what were they going to do? Well, the scribes opted to understand happiness as human flourishing. So the Hebrew word used in Psalm 1 is the word to emphasize human flourishing. So the nuance is this. One of the words, the first word that I mentioned, focuses on God's active work. You know, for example, it's like when I say God has granted you favor, God has actively done something. So that's one translation, right? The other option focuses on the state of a person. Like it's like saying it like this: You are poor in spirit, therefore you can flourish, because this is who I am. I am now flourishing. So I understand it's it's a nuance, but actually sometimes nuances are really helpful. So, which is it in Matthew three? And in one sense, the answer is yes. It's both. You know, you can see how one leads into the other. If you're favored by God, you're flourishing. If you're flourishing, you're favored by God. So, you know, perhaps they go hand in hand. And I think that's a, I'd be a fair way to look at what it means to be blessed. God favors you and I'm flourishing. I am flourishing and God favors you. But I do think that the thrust or the emphasis by Jesus is to teach us what it looks like to flourish. Because it's, it's more than God just granting you favor, but... It's God having a desire for you to live in a particular way that is distinct. You live in this particular way, you will flourish. God wants you to flourish, right? God wants you to thrive, be blessed, flourish. <laughs> and God wants you to flourish and thrive as you live distinctly before him in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now, so I know, I know I'm, I, I grant that I am pulling a lot of threads together, but I hope you are be able to, you're able to see the kind of the lay of the land as we approach the first beatitude and then the second beatitude and then the third beatitude and then the fourth beatitude and so on. So let's go back to parenting to bring in another analogy to connect a few more 
dots. Many households have rules, right? There are spoken rules and there are unspoken rules. I call unspoken rules common sense, but let's just focus on the spoken rules. Here's one rule. Uh, kids, don't punch or push your sibling, right? That's pretty, pretty obvious rule. Don't do that, right? You do that, there's going to be consequences. Now, let me ask you this question. Is a child going to flourish if they're constantly breaking the rule, right? I mean, at, I, could, I could speak for the Powers household. The answer is no. My children are not going to flourish if they keep hammering on one another, right? You kind of see my point. Good parents want their kids to flourish, and we, so they want them to live in a particular way. They want them to live distinctly. Now, let me ask this question. How much more does God the Father want his sons and daughters to flourish in his kingdom by living distinctly? But not, by not only not punching your sibling, but actually doing the opposite, right? Which is end up loving them. Okay. Let's get out of the weeds. Let's emerge out of the weeds. But I hope you see what it means to be blessed, which is which it means that God wants us to flourish in his kingdom. So for you to flourish, you need to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is the first beatitude. And it's the first beatitude because this beatitude actually sets the table for all the following beatitudes. Now here's a story that helps you understand what it means to be uh, poor in spirit. Uh, pastor John Piper, he's a retired pastor in the Twin Cities, tells a story about a student who approached him after a sermon. Uh, the student asked Piper um, this pointed question. He says, isn't Christianity a, a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? Right. And uh, I've heard that before. Like, you just need a crutch in your life, right? You can't, you can't do it on your own. That's why you're a Christian. And here's how Piper recounts his response. And I quote, my answer was very simple. I said, yes, period. If you think that Jesus is not a crutch for your life, then you're not poor in spirit. However, if you acknowledge that you 100%, 1,000%, 10,000%, whatever, you are completely in utterly dependent upon God, then you're actually heading into the right direction about what it means to be poor in spirit. So grab the crutch, right? Grab the crutch and just lean on it. It's not going to break. I mean, take that crutch away and you're leaning, you're going to smack right on the ground. No, lean on that crutch. It will not break. So what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit, to to lean on God, to be 100% dependent upon God. First, Jesus is not saying that you are to be materially poor, right? Uh, that is not the emphasis here. There are pockets of Catholic thought that take poor to be like material wealth. Uh, that is false in terms of a primary emphasis. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the context. Um, the beatitude is not not about like what's in your checking or savings account. Um, doesn't mean like you're experiencing hardship Poor in spirit is not a state of like desperate uh, uh, depression. Like circumstances have little to do to describe what it means for you to be poor in spirit. But I say all that to say this, being poor in spirit impacts how you think about your material possessions, your bank account, or your present circumstances, right? To be poor in spirit means to uh, be completely empty before God. You're completely empty before God. When a person is poor in spirit, there is an acknowledgement of one person's inadequacy before God. We should not be shocked that this is the first beatitude. If, if Jesus is about to download onto you um, a bunch of truths, a bunch of truth bombs onto your heart, you want to make sure that you come to God ready and empty. And he can fill you up, right? You come to Jesus empty and needy, and Jesus says, here, this is what I have to tell you. And here's a really simple, and I'm not trying to be silly, but I think it's a simple example of what it, what it takes to come to God poor in spirit. 
kids and adults can understand this uh, example. So kids, you got your sermon notes. This would be a good example for you to write down because I think you'll get it. Uh, let's say you got a cup of water, right? I don't do props, but I happen to have a cup of water this morning. And uh, it's right here. And uh, let's say you got that cup of water. Your heart is the cup. And you have, you, you have filled that cup to the brim. Well, it is time for you to bring that cup to Jesus. But before you come, you need to empty that cup. I mean, we could even make it even more Christological if we want to. Empty that cup at the foot of the cross. You need to empty yourself of your ambitions, your dreams, your desires, your possessions, and of your very life. And then you need to allow Jesus to fill your cup back up. You must acknowledge that you bring nothing to the table and you need help. In a sense, being poor in spirit requires that you have a, a proper perspective toward how you view yourself and how you view God. Let's move away from the cups of water and uh, look at several biblical examples of people who were poor in spirit. These individuals help uh, kind of put some color on what Jesus is saying from Matthew 5.3. After King David, here's the first one. I got three of them. After King David commits adultery, right? Remember, he did that. And, and it's that, that wasn't enough. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. He kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. That's not cool. And then deep conviction sets in on David's life. Basically, sin found out David. And he understood, in light of his actions what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, I'm going to read Psalm 51, verse 17 here in a second, but the suggestion is not, <laughs> go sin so you can figure out how to be poor in spirit. Now, David did it the wrong way. We're going to get a few other examples here in a moment. But in this particular case, sin found him out and he became poor in spirit. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So we have the man after God's own heart who at one point followed his own sinful desires and then led him into complete and utter brokenness before God. Now that could go a different way for some people, right? You, you move down that path and you, and you never become broken and contrite, right? You just continue on with the same old sinful patterns. But at least for David, as, as wicked and as evil as his actions were, he came to a place where he's like, man, I messed up. I messed up good. Here's another example. Job, who lost everything, also knew poverty of spirit. Remember Job? A righteous man, right? And then like everything was taken away from him. Everything. Speaking about God, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Something's changed in Job. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Like he had, he had one perspective of God, right? He knew about God. And then there came a point he saw God. And that changed everything for him. Here's another example again. I want you to notice David, Job, now Isaiah, all completely different circumstances, but they came to a place of utter brokenness and dependence upon God. Prophet Isaiah, uh, right before he's about to be set loose by God to go preach um, judgment and hope to Israel, because Israel's being dumb. About he's right before he's about to do this, what does he say? He says this in Isaiah 6 5 Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You should take time to read Isaiah 6 1 8 just to kind of get the context there. But the moment Isaiah saw God, he was broken. He was undone. He was poor in spirit. Now, 
you hear what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, along with several examples from the Bible. Yet, what do you hear from the culture, right? You hear the opposite. The message from the culture, and I would say in particular, American culture, but I'm, this is not this unique to American culture, but what we hear is what? Self-reliance. Self-assurance. Self-expression. You do you. Whatever you is. Right? That's what we hear. Consider this expression of self-assurance that you hear all the time. You hear it all the time. Uh, believe in yourself. I mean, it's commercials that have that kind of language. Believe in yourself. Now, as a person who used to coach, I understand the sentiment in that phrase. Like, in in one sense, I wanted the the guys that I was coaching to believe in themselves. <laughs> like, you can do it. I believe in you. You believe in you too. So I, I I like get the sentiment. But is that the message a Christian should be following? At the end of the day, you kind of get past the sentiment. Is that a message a a Christian should be following? Is believing in yourself biblical? I want to suggest that believing in yourself is the opposite of being poor in spirit. Christians are called to empty themselves and believe in Christ. Like, I don't want to believe in Sean Powers in one sense, right? In a very profound sense, believing in me is going to lead to a really bad road in life. But if I look to Christ, that's different. Only when you come to Christ with an empty cup and believe in Christ that you can genuinely know what it means to see God. See God, just like we saw with Job in Isaiah. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus, uh, who is poor in spirit. In the book of Philippians, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, just so you know, not that you ask, but I'm just telling you. <laughs> In the book of Philippians, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul is basically saying, Hey, um, you want to be like Jesus? You need to have this mind like Jesus, this perspective of the world like Jesus, the perspective of the kingdom, right? His kingdom. So verse 6, So after he's saying, Have this mind among yourselves in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with the God, a, th- a thing to be grasped. There's a lot there we could talk about. We don't have time. And just That's another Bunny trail, but look at verse 7. But Jesus emptied himself, the Son of God, the Son of Man, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what do we read in verse 8? And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Why did Jesus humble himself? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2 shows us another characteristic of what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Verse 7 says Jesus emptied himself. I've already been talking about that. In verse 8, we read that Jesus humbled himself while taking the hard but necessary road to the cross. Jesus emptied and humbled himself so that you could join him by emptying and humbling yourself. Except Jesus did the one thing you couldn't do. Atone for sin. Your own sin. Right? It takes humility. It really does take humility to acknowledge you need help from God. It takes humility to admit that you are completely and utterly dependent upon God. And we know the opposite of humility is, is pride. The two oppose each other. James 4, 6 makes it clear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? When you are humble and empty, there is enough grace from God to sustain you in life at any moment. When you are humble and empty, you begin to see what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, there might be a temptation for some people, not all people, but there might be a temptation to be poor in spirit through, attempt to be poor in spirit through false humility. <laughs> it's interesting as I was reading, you know, this passage and reading a few commentators, many people brought this up, which I was initially surprised. And then I remembered the condition of the human heart. False humility takes on the appearance of humility, but it asks that everyone look at you while you're being humble. <laughs> 
instead of look at Christ, right? It's look at me. Look how lowly Sean Powers is, right? It's that kind of attitude. True humility. I found this to be true about life. True humility is never announced, but it is certainly observed. I've told this story, and maybe you, you won't remember. It's been a long time. I know that because I um, had checked my notes. And I'm like, I don't know if I told this story, but it's one that was uh, surprising for me. Uh, to hear uh, in 2013, native Argentinian, a native Argentinian, uh, became Pope Francis. Right? Uh, when when Pope Francis was asked, like, "Hey, uh, the smoke went up. They picked you. Um, you know, why did they pick you?" And his response was, "Because I'm humble." <laughs> it's like, like that's kind of a contradiction, isn't it? <laughs> to point out that you're humble, and like, he might be a humble dude. I don't know. Certainly, I've never met Pope Francis, but you're kind of pointing out that you're humble. It's like, okay. Um, but, you know, I, I, I digress, but you kind of see the point of making it. It's like, it's kind of silly to be like, oh, look at me. I'm so humble. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit, right? We've talked about several aspects, emptying and humbling, right? Well, let me pull it together with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. That, then, is what it means to be poor in spirit. It means a complete absence of of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God, right? Let me interject. Uh, David (laughs) and Isaiah, uh, they felt, uh, Job, they felt like nothing in the presence of God, right? And and continuing on with the quote, it is nothing then, that we produce. It is nothing that we can do ourselves. It is this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So by God's grace, right? By God's grace, because again, you can't do this yourself. If you try to do it yourself, you, you're, you're doing the exact opposite of trying to be poor in spirit. By God's grace, may you empty yourself of everything said by Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? Just go back, empty yourself of the pride, this idea of self-assurance and self-reliance, right? Empty yourself of those things. And by God's grace, may you see how much you need God. Like you can never outgrow this first beatitude. It just can't happen. If the moment you try to outgrow this first beatitude, you you begin to outgrow Christianity, which is kind of silly saying it that way, but you can, hopefully it makes the point. You can't outgrow it. You can't. So empty yourself, humble yourself before a holy God. Now, as we know, with each beatitude, there is a benefit. I've already mentioned it and we already read it, right? When you are poor in spirit, you receive the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you look at verse 10, you'll notice that those who are persecuted and are righteous also receive the kingdom of heaven. And in between those two verses, verse 3, verse 10, are different like benefits of being blessed by God, right? Benefits of, 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 of this human flourishing that I've been talking about. Uh, the first of the an eighth beatitude create this thing called an inclusio. Um, an inclusio is a bracketing and a passage brace is basically it. Uh, the first bracket is in verse three, like I said, and the other one's in verse 10. I think using the kingdom of heaven as a bracket for the beatitudes helps to reinforce the point that Jesus made in chapter four, which I was talking about last week in reference to the authority of Christ. Like Jesus has the authority to preach into the kingdom of heaven, right? The sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of heaven. Here's the point Jesus is making and I've been attempting to push. You are part of a kingdom that is unlike any other kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is utterly different from the other kingdoms of this world. But receiving the kingdom of heaven requires you to become poor in spirit. You're not going to do this perfectly, right? You're not. That's why you, you need God's help. It's a state of who you are. It's an acknowledgement of who you are. Again, we're talking about ontology and being and essence. Now, I suppose it would be a good idea to try getting our minds around what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Frankly, these two terms are interchangeable. Some people debate that. They are interchangeable. That's the bottom line. Uh, Matthew uses this language of kingdom of heaven because his particular audience that he was writing to is Jewish and 
if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know about Israel and Jews, they don't say the Lord's name out loud. And so I think Matthew's just kind of be like, okay, I'm going to lean into your sensibilities and just say, instead of saying kingdom of God, I'm going to say kingdom of heaven. I think that is what's going on here. Um, no need to overcomplicate it. Nonetheless, what does the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven mean? First, the kingdom of heaven is to be zealously guarded. This is a huge theme in the gospel of Matthew. And you need to zealously guard the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 13 is full of parables about the kingdom of heaven. If you want to learn more about the kingdom of heaven, turn to there. But here's a few of those parables. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Right? So you got this treasure. It's in a field, which a man found and covered up. So he found this treasure. It's in the middle of the field. He covered it up, put some dirt on it, right? Tried to hide it from everyone. <laughs> Then and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So he's like, he empties the check account. He empties the savings account. He puts the house on the market. He liquidates everything so that he could go buy that field because in that field was the kingdom of heaven. Like he, he empties himself, <laughs> like quite literally empties himself. And here's the following parable. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, like looking for pearls and on finding one pearl of great value. So the greatest pearl one could ever find. He found it and he sold all that he had and he bought that one pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Like he wasn't trying to diversify his portfolio. He actually emptied the portfolio to go buy this one pearl. That's how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is to be obtained and guarded at all costs. If you give up everything for the kingdom of heaven, you've actually gained the most valuable treasure. The kingdom of heaven is a big deal. We have to see that. But what is it? <laughs> I still haven't answered the question. What is it? I want you to hear me really carefully. The kingdom of heaven Here's, here's, here's the secret that isn't so secret. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of Christ over your heart. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of Christ over your heart. The kingdom of heaven is first spiritual. It's a spiritual reality that certainly has physical ramifications and implications, right? Uh, the physical implications impact your life now. And of course, this will be most clearly seen when Jesus returns, right? But until then, the kingdom of heaven is Christ reigning over your heart and your heart joyfully responds to your Savior. The poor in spirit truly know the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, what we've said, they surrender to God. The poor in spirit are willing to empty themselves before God. The poor in spirit are willing to let everything go for God. The poor in spirit, um, they know God's grace and the impact of God's grace on the heart. The poor in spirit know that they are needy beggars. But here's the deal. Unlike like earthly beggars, and I'm not trying to be pejorative by any means, but the poor in spirit know that they are poor before a generous king. A generous king. That is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is Christ in you. Now, there are several points of application for having the kingdom of heaven. Because when you have the kingdom of heaven, right, Christ is your king. Right? You kind of see the imagery in play here. we got a kingdom. It's called the kingdom of heaven. Now, in, in every kingdom, we have a king. Who is that king? It's King Jesus. And you are a, beggy, uh, a beggar and needy before King Jesus. So what are some of these applications? When Christ is your king... You are assured forgiveness of sins. When Christ is your king, you are assured eternal life. When Christ is your king, you are commissioned by God to carry out God's mission, right? He's commissioned you. I'm your king. Now you are my ambassador. Now go. Go go do the very things that I preached on the Sermon on the Mount. Live that particular way, right? That's the response of the subjects of the great king. If if Christ is your king, you know what he endured to ensure your forgiveness. You know that Christ suffered and died as the ultimate payment and atonement for your sin. The death of Christ was the price of your redemption. 
But you also know the Son of God did not stay in the grave, right? He didn't stay in the grave. He didn't just die on the cross, and they put him in the grave, Joseph of Arimathea, right? Took his personal grave and, and put Jesus in there. But he rose from the dead. Christ defeated sin and death, right? And when Christ rose from the dead, so did you rise from death. And now sin no longer holds sway over your life. And now you no longer need to fear death. Like I could die on the way home of a heart attack or, or whatever, right? But where does that leave me? With Jesus. I don't need to fear death. All because of King Jesus. For a moment, consider like the kingdom of this world. What does the kingdom of this world offer you? Like seriously, take that question to heart. What does the kingdom of this world offer you? Sure, it fulfills momentary desires. It can give you material wealth. You might be able to live a life of prosperity, right? But can the kingdom of the world deal with the cosmic treason that you and I have committed against a holy and just God? Does the kingdom of the world care about forgiveness? Like I see more cancel culture and no forgiveness in the kingdom of the world. I see the opposite again. Oftentimes, when we compare the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of the world, we're going to see very opposite ways of living life and viewing life and viewing the world. That is certainly an example. So I think it's clear the kingdom of this world does not know lasting forgiveness. Does this kingdom, this kingdom of the world, know about what it means to be poor in spirit? Absolutely not. And that's what I've tried to show you throughout this message. And I think that's what we've seen this morning. Sure, this world is full of shiny objects that are trying to get your attention. But all these things pale in comparison to Christ. Each beatitude, including this one, leaves you with kind of a choice. It's not explicit, but... I think at the end of the day, if you allow to, uh, if you allow this beatitude to test your heart, you begin to see the choice that you're confronted with. The first beatitude is no different than all the other ones. Do you desire to be poor in spirit and receive all the blessings of Christ? And if you want a reminder of all those blessings, just go to Ephesians 1. But do you desire to be poor in spirit and to receive all the blessings of Christ? Do you want to flourish in a manner in which God intends you to flourish, right? Or will you choose the kingdom of this world where flourishing is fleeting? I want to encourage you to settle and answer the question in your heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.